What is sin? Where did it come from? How has it affected us as human beings? How has it affected the world in which we live? In the last episode of Thinking Theology, we saw that God created human beings. He created human beings to reflect him, to rule over the world under him. He made us to relate to him. But things are no longer as they were created to be. Our world is broken and we're broken. But what happened to get us from there to here? That's what we're thinking about in this episode of Thinking Theology. Hi, my name's Carl Benick. I write about theology and I teach it at Sydney Missionary and Bible College. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Where did sin come from? In a moment, we'll look at the consequences of the fall into sin, but we're going to begin by looking at the event itself. The fall of humanity into sin takes place in Genesis 3. God made the world good, and he gave the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, free reign of the garden. There was one thing, however, which they were not permitted to do. That is, they were not permitted to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. God tells them in Genesis 2 verse 16, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. However, in Genesis 3, that simple command is broken, and with it, all of humanity and all of creation is plunged into sin. It's helpful to look at the details of that fall into sin since it tells us some important things about the nature of sin. At the beginning of chapter 3, we see Satan in the form of a snake coming to Eve and raising doubts about what God has said. Satan says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That is an out-and-out lie. God never said they couldn't eat from any tree. He said they could eat from every tree except one. Satan is casting God as ungenerous and stingy. Next, the woman responds with a half-truth. She says in verse 2, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The woman has corrected the serpent's error about what God had said, but then she adds an error of her own. She says they can't even touch the tree in the middle of the garden. But God had not said that. He had only said that they couldn't eat from it. What we're beginning to see then is that the serpent's lies are undermining increasingly God's truth. Next, the serpent out and out lies by stating that if the woman eats from the tree, she won't die, which again is a lie. Instead, he says, God doesn't want them to eat from it because if they do, they'll become like God. So verse 4 You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, the serpent paints God as stingy and as wanting to keep good things from the man and the woman. But here also, in many ways, is the heart of sin, that is, the desire to be like God. 
At the heart of sin is the desire to replace God with ourselves. Instead of God being in charge, we get to be in charge. And often bound up with that is the lie that taking God's place would be better because God is keeping things from us that it would be better for us to have. The particular way in which the serpent suggests Eve will become like God is in knowing good and evil. Understanding exactly what that means is a little bit tricky, but the phrase good and evil is used in other places in the Bible. So Solomon asks in 1 Kings chapter 3 for wisdom to judge between good and evil. He says, So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? In that case, the idea is the ability to decide or determine what's right and wrong. Similarly, a woman who comes to David for judgment in a matter says of him, And now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance, for my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. David has been appointed by God to judge what is good and evil in the matters brought to him. The basic idea then is that knowing good and evil is about having the authority to say what is good and what is evil. In eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve then grasp for themselves the authority to determine what is right and wrong. And that matches what actually takes place. That is, in deciding to eat from the tree, Eve decides that her judgment is better than God's. God said, don't eat from the tree, but Eve decides that she knows better. In that sense, the tree is not special in any particular way. The fruit is not magical. Rather, it's simply a tree that God set apart as exemplifying his rule. In eating from the tree, Adam and Eve rejected God's rule and took upon themselves the authority to determine what is right and wrong. So we've seen the nature of the sin and rebellion of humanity against God, but what are the consequences of that? Many of the consequences become apparent in Genesis 3 in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin. The first of those consequences is judgment and death. God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Not only will life now be hard, but death has entered the world. Human beings will return to the dust from which they were formed. Similarly, God prevents the man and the woman from accessing the tree of life. The tree is the means that God had ordained to sustain their ongoing life. Paul too talks in the New Testament about the entry of death into the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion. He says in Romans 5 verse 12, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. He says too in chapter 5 verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. And by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. In other words, the result of Adam and Eve's sin was judgment and condemnation. They had broken God's command and the result of that judgment and condemnation was death. Not only physical death for this life, but also something much worse. Revelation 20 speaks about the so-called second death, 
that is, God's eternal judgment. What Revelation also calls the lake of fire. Physical death is only a portent of that much greater and much more terrifying reality. The second consequence of the fall into sin is corruption. That is, not only are human beings condemned and subject to death, but we're also corrupted by sin. Sin lives in us and distorts us. Paul writes about that in Ephesians 2. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul talks about being dead in sin. That deadness manifested itself in following Satan rather than God, in gratifying our desires that are at odds with God. We see that corruption in us when, without our consciously deciding to do it, anger whirls up in us, or greed, or selfishness. Those things are often not things we decide to do, they're instinctive. And those instincts are what the Bible calls our sinful nature. It is the corruption of sin that lives within us. And because of that corruption, Paul says, we are objects of God's wrath. It's important to realize that we're not only objects of God's wrath because of the sins we have committed, but we're also objects of God's wrath because of the disease of sin that lives within us and distorts us. It's not enough simply to be forgiven for our sins in the past. God's solution to the problem of sin must also address the ongoing corruption that lives within us. The third consequence of the fall into sin is misery and decay. We see that already in Genesis chapter 3. Childbearing, for example, becomes painful for the woman. God says to Eve, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So too, there's a breakdown in the relationship between the man and the woman. God says again to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There is now this power struggle between the man and the woman, destroying God's good pattern for their relationship with one another. So too, work is now plagued with hardship. In Genesis 3.17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. It's not that work itself is a curse. Work is a good gift from God. We were created to work in God's world under God. But because of our desire to live in God's world without him, work has now become bitter and frustrating. Paul talks about the decay of the world too in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The world is groaning, 
It's groaning because it's not what it ought to be. Human rebellion against God has plunged the whole world into chaos. We can see that. We see it in death, disease, destruction, earthquakes, floods, famine, and wars. That's not to say there are no echoes of the way God intended the world to be. The world is broken, but we can still see clearly the glory of the God who made it. But we see that glory in the same way that we see the beauty of a watch whose face has been damaged. There are glimpses of glory, but also signs of destruction. That's important because it means that we can't simply look at how the world is now and assume that's what God intended it to be. We can't simply look at ourselves and say, God made me like this, therefore it must be okay. I have these desires, therefore those desires must be okay. In the words of the theologian Wesley Hill, that's having a theology of creation without a theology of the fall. We see a similar thing when people say something like, it's natural, therefore it must be good. Natural things too are fallen and broken, corrupted and decaying. Some natural things might be better than things that are not natural. But that won't always be true. Some natural things will kill us. So good theology will lead us to be suspicious of the idea that things in the world that are untouched by human beings are somehow intrinsically better. Human sin has had ramifications on the entire created world. The whole world is broken. And so are we. God made a beautiful world. He made us as human beings within that world to be special, to reflect him and to relate to him, to rule his world under him. But as human beings, we've rebelled. And as a result, condemnation, death, sin and decay have entered the world. Each one of us continues to live in the way that Adam and Eve did. We reject the rule of God and live our own way such that we share not only in the consequences of what they did, but we also share in the consequences of our own daily rebellion. So what's the solution? Well, that's what we're thinking about in the next episode of Thinking Theology, when we begin to think about who Jesus is and how his very person solves the problem of our rebellion and sin. Please join me then.